You're listening to the Candare Podcast, your sidekick in the quest for knowledge, power, and entertainment. So strap yourselves in and prepare for victory! To another episode of Can Dare, your tribute to comics and pop culture. I am Jeremy Colley. I am Jake Runyon. And we have uh, joining us a few special guests this week. First of all, in place of Jack, who couldn't be here today, my lovely girlfriend, Brooke Johnson. Thanks for sitting in uh, for Jack today. Thanks for having me, you guys. It's going to be a good show. We've got oh, yeah. a very special guest with us today. Uh, our guest has scored over 3,000 television episodes. 3,000. That's crazy to think about. On such shows as The Soul Man, The Thundermans, and Hot in Cleveland, uh, he and his wife, Kathy Fisher, uh, make up the duo Fisher that has produced the uh, hit song, I Will Love You, which was named the most downloaded song on the internet in 2000. Good work. Yeah, that's crazy. But he's probably best known for uh, his work uh, doing the theme song and the music for Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Mr. Ron Wasserman. Thanks for being with us, Ron. Ah, very happy to be here. Hello. <laughs> and uh, big <laughs> congratulations to you. Uh, we were just seeing on Facebook, uh, what was the show, First Dates? First Dates, Date, yeah. Uh, premiered last night. It seemed to be very successful. Yeah, it did really well. Ironically, it replaced a very close friend of mine's show called Grimm that he had running for oh, five or six seasons. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun to tell him a week ago, I think, guess who's taking the Friday night 8 p.m. slot? <laughs> I won't tell you what he said. <laughs> I got an idea. <laughs> well, again, this is uh, awesome. Thanks for taking time to talk with us. But I just want to jump right back to the very beginning before we even touch on the Power Rangers or anything. You began your music career at the age of three, correct? Correct. Yeah, I started playing piano when I was three. And um, my parents just couldn't stop me. I apparently wanted to live with that thing. So we that's, yeah, that's when I started. And by age five, had your first published piece of work? Yeah, for finger exercise books. It was probably somewhat local, but it was my first, my first published work. And uh, I was pretty excited about it later in life at five and a half i probably went like whatever okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> where's the next lollipop i had barely started my feeding myself career at age five so that's a <laughs> right. pretty impressive start i like well, i'm still working on that okay so. good. glad i'm not the only <laughs> one trade-off I like to think I've always been a fan of music, but uh, Ron here, if I read correctly, you were sleeping with 45s rather than teddy bears when you were a kid. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah, my mom had told me that. Um, I can't remember when, and I never believed her. And then after she passed away, I was going through a bunch of pictures that uh, uh, you know, she had in boxes, and I came across one shot where I'm two or three years old, and there I am holding a yellow... 45 record and I went 
oh, okay. <laughs> you know, because right. my mom suffered later in life from uh, uh, vascular dementia. So she told oh. me lots of things I did that uh, I didn't do. So that one, I went, oh, I guess I really did. So, um, yeah. That's something cool to find out later on. Yeah, that's really neat, man. Yeah, I was apparently just uh, born with the music gene. Not the, uh, and, and very few others. Not capable of doing a lot of other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got one, the one that matters. Music's so important, right? Sure. I, I have life. a quick question. Were you reading by ear at three or were you mm. or, or playing well, was, by ear at three or, or taking lessons? Yeah. I was I was probably starting to write lessons didn't start until I was four or five. What happened was we were really poor and my mom and dad said he's got a gift and they took me to some special teacher who said, nobody, that's right, I was four. And uh, the guy said, you know, there's nobody four. It's not like I'm this amazing player, it's just what I was doing at that age. And uh, and I played for him and he said, I'll be glad to take him as a student, but the lessons were $25 each. Wow. And that wow. was impossible then. So um, I ended up with uh, lessons that were $1.50. And the teachers were great. They always asked me to leave after a few months because they realized I wasn't practicing, you know, reading what they wanted me to play that week. What I would do is I had a little tape recorder and I'd have them play it for me and then I'd listen to it and I'd be able to play it and then I'd kind of elaborate ever so slightly on it and that didn't fly very well, ever. <laughs> And that that uh, followed you even into uh, your college years, right? I mean, you were having instructors tell you the same kind of thing. Yeah, I, re I remember it was it was uh, the first music theory class I, in college. I said I'm going to take a music theory class, and I remember the first day the teacher sat down at the piano and just played a single note melody, and he said, "By the time you're out of my class, you'll be able to tell me what I just played." And I, I said, I just raised my hand. I said, what note did you start on C? And I said, you, know, you played C, E flat, A flat, G, B flat, D sharp. Unbelievable. And he, named, and he goes, why are you here? I said, because I don't know anything about theory. Well, as time went on and I didn't do the homework correctly or do it, I can't remember. He took me outside one day and said, I think you should leave. You're not going with the program and it no disrespect to him i wasn't going with the program and you know there's nothing wrong with any class in the world saying please leave sure <laughs> i had no problem with that i was like okay so it Another wasn't hour just opened up <laughs> so it wasn't a matter of him thinking like oh I, you can't just be taught the way i want to teach you it was like you were too advanced for the course no it was him saying you can't be taught the way i want to teach you hmm Incredible. Because, you know, it was it's a very fixed thing. All these guys who go to Berkeley or go to other music schools, it's a very specific curriculum, and they adhere to that. And so when they're writing something, they're not just feeling it and playing it, and they're thinking mathematically, oh, I can go here, I can go here, where I will just... Sometimes, especially on on darker stuff, I'll just be 
futzing around for a while until I go like, ooh, ooh, yeah, that's good, that's right, right. yeah, yeah, <laughs> And so I'm never thinking of the textbook and playing, you know, a C major and going, oh, I know everywhere I can go that'll sound great for this type of feel. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it works great for the people who can do it, and it works fine for me not being able to. And I can, yeah, I can't imagine having, you know, when you've come up your whole life learning music a certain way and then everyone telling you to do it a different sure. way, to go back and relearn all that would be so taxing. Yeah. And you there's, just, absolutely. I think there's certain kinds of talent you don't want to put in a box. And this certainly right. seems like the sort of thing that you needed a, a, a free form sort of process. And I, I think that's incredible. Age, that might happen in this day and age, I think. Um, I, I think things have changed to where teachers would be able to spot that. It's odd, all the non-music teachers I had, especially in high school, and one in junior high, they they really saw it, and they just said, um, you know, you should keep doing what you're doing with no instructions. You know, there was nothing attached to it. Right. But it was the music people that were... So it was good. I learned early on. It was like getting notes like I get now on every show from uh, sometimes incredibly gifted people who really give great music notes to other shows I've had where I don't know what it is, but there's something in the thing that you did at that part that just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But I've learned how to translate that these days uh, right. for the, you know, really for the last 20 years, you know, you, you start to learn their lingo and you go, okay, I can hear in your voice. I know exactly what you're feeling. So I know what to change now. Could you make it different for me? I just want it slightly better. Is that an option? <laughs> well, it's you know, it's funny. As soon as you said that, I instantly like tightened up. <laughs> that was the weirdest thing. I, I immediately my oh, shoulders no. shot up. You built up those <laughs> no, reflexes. It's not, it's not real. It's not real. Yeah, it's just, reflex. Just keep conveying the emotion. Tune it out. <laughs> yeah, it's probably best that I always heard that over the phone. If I was sitting in front of them, I probably was like, "Stay cool, stay cool." <laughs> <laughs> well, your uh, your method of music making is, I'd say, my preferred method. I mean, not that there's sure. anything wrong with the other way. You just seem to get a lot more uh, meaning and emotion. Kind of an instinctual think, from this kind of musician. Method. Right. Am I wrong? Yeah, because it's stupid? always honest, which uh, if you want to shoot up, you know, as an 80s bands and almost signed and then with signed artists and starting meeting people. But I think that's the essence of why that 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 first, you know, that Power Rangers theme and all that stuff worked, because there was for most of the time, there was never anybody breathing down my back. And those songs are all specifically, except for the theme, they're all specifically about my angst at that time. Or, you know, there's there's like a song called I Know a Place, which I never did a cover on. It was never released. And it's supposed to be, a, you know, I know a place that we can run to, the enemy will never find. It was about a bar around the corner that all of us would go to because we worked at night. And we go grab a drink at 10 o'clock and we're like, we're safe here. None of the executives would even know where we are.
so and nice. turned it into a Power Ranger song. Wow. And then later on, as things evolved, uh, one day I remember the president of music came in and he said, "Okay, so apparently, because Heim Saban was, you know, very strong." Clinton supporter and all the fundraisers were at his house and he was very close to the Gores and apparently Tipper Gore didn't feel my music was was positive enough so I got the note saying don't use words like fight anything that would incite violence stay with major chords not minor chords same thing the church did to composers in the 16th century right. you know an A minor chord was the devil inciting the devil Mm-hmm. So uh, that's when things got a little happier. <laughs> now Tipper Gore did Tipper Gore did a doozy on music there for a while. Yes, she did. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, she bought into that. She she must in her life something must have triggered that. She must buy so much into fantasy that it affects her reality, and that <laughs> happens to a lot of people. So somehow music must just have an, and always must have had such an overwhelming effect on her hmm. that she couldn't possibly control herself from what she heard, you know? And right. it could be some stuff sent her into a euphoric state. Who knows? Right. Who knows? So she assumed, well, this must happen to everybody. So, you know, that was an odd note, and it was, you know, being very politically correct to make those changes. I certainly wasn't going to go, I'm not M&M, I wasn't going to go, tell them the fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, though we would have been entertained by that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's probably not the best. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I probably would have gotten a couple of guys coming by to visit me. Hello, Mr. Wasserman. We're here to break your legs, sir. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, if you don't mind my asking, given the level of experience you have now and, and what a huge list of accomplishments that you have to fall back on. Do you find that when you accept new work, they're more willing to, to let you run with it in the way you want to? Perhaps the times are changing or do you still find no. yourself... Okay. The, re- the restrictions... <laughs> it depends, again, on the people, but the restrictions have gotten worse. Oh, no. Because almost everybody I work with Unless, unless, uh, like there was an Orbitz commercial I, uh, that we shot uh, last Saturday, and I'd written the track. They, uh, uh, again, the guy who did Grimm that I did Hot in Cleveland with and The Soul Man were close friends. And, and he called and he said, we're doing this commercial and we want something in this style. And can you do something? And, you know, one of the lucky things is I usually hear something in my head fairly quickly, which is why I have small recorders everywhere all the time. And two days later, I delivered the finished track, and that was a a very complimentary email I got back from everybody in the. Uh... But on other shows, there's times where they just, especially those TV land shows, there was one of the network execs that just killed me on everything I did, everything. He would call and say. Well, there's a guitar chord going out to commercial. We're talking about a one-second single chord. <laughs> and at the end, there's a little squeak. Can you get rid of the little squeak? I mean, it's just wow. Wow. way. And, and every cue had to be, every transition, everything had to be approved. And 
And so I went, I've got a great idea, and this has worked wonders. And I, I've, now, honest to God, I haven't had to do this on any of the Nickelodeon shows. Those guys, I've been very fortunate, especially on Thunderman's. When I get a note, it is so dead accurate. So it doesn't count for this. But I said, okay, I'm going to bombard this guy. So I started sending three options per scene. It could be a one-second cue. It could be a smash cut, meaning it's like a sound effect almost. And I would go, which option do you want? Which option do you want? And after about two shows, he said, fucking stop. I don't want to hear anything else. Do what you want. And I went, okay. Solve that problem, right? <laughs> yeah, solve that problem right away. Oh, you think word would spread and they just let you handle it from the start, you know? Right. They Clearly you know what you're doing. They don't I've never once other than again my buddy that I did the orbits and those shows with, I've never once sat down in the meeting and had them say, Well, you've got quite a resume here, so why don't you just do what you want and Give us a couple options. It always, every single job, you feel like you're starting at the bottom again. It's really interesting. And this happens to, I was at an awards dinner once with Randy Newman, who has scored. Oh, you wow. Know, you, you, right, we all know who he is. Oh, yeah. He was telling this great story. He had written all this, a couple songs and a, a fair amount of temp score for the first Toy Story. And they called him in for a meeting, and they said, yeah, I'm paraphrasing, it's nice, Randy, but we'd like you to do this completely different. And so he just said, okay, okay, I can do that. All I need to do is lower my expectations. I'll have new <laughs> stuff for you soon. And the new stuff was brilliant. And I'd love to know what the other stuff was. Right. But even at his level, and even Hans Zimmer, who I know through one degree of separation, he gets fired. I mean, there's films that he's well into, even though he's got ghostwriters, but he's well into it, and he gets fired. That's incredible. So it happens. I think the only person that's untouchable is John Williams. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. He could... He, he could do anything but he's also one of the only guys in the business that i know of that sits down with paper and writes out the score completely every instrument by hand out of his head no kidding and and maybe works a little out on the piano but he literally notates the entire thing himself so john williams is the only one that does the entire thing and i'm you know he's uh, the genius of geniuses so have you so, ever met the man? No. 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 I've been in a room when he was there. So he walked by about 10 feet away, and I just went... But, yeah, he was it was another awards dinner. He was accepting award. He walked in dressed nicely, but not over the top. He didn't try to be funny. He didn't try to be... I mean, he was just... You can you can see why the guy's been so hugely successful. Sure, absolutely. He just it must just pour out of him. There's something about his scores that just stand apart. I feel like they're written more in the uh, aspect of uh, like a rock or a jazz number than actually just background ambient noise. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, he's learned the thing that most film composers 
don't know, which is have a melody. Right. So there's a lot of current guys. They may do the big, giant Hollywood score, and it may be the studio that stops them from doing it. They may get a note going, oh, that, that bum, 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 it stands out too much. It's going to get in the way of dialogue. Can you cut that? You can keep the track oh. underneath, but get rid of the melody. But that's the thing, and that's why I was reading an interesting uh, article, and I'll throw the question to you. Uh, sing me a Marvel theme. Not X-Men, not, not the cartoon. Oh. Sing me a Marvel theme. They don't have them. Yeah, they don't. I can sing a few things from Robert Downey Jr.'s solo CD. <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> That's close. I'm back, I'm back in rehab. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a guy who turned his life oh, right. Yeah. yeah, no kidding. It's a 180. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is clearly he woke up one day and said, okay, okay. <laughs> right, I gotta right. get back to my work. Enough, that enough. was fun. Now you just mentioned uh, the X Men theme song. You had your hand in that, didn't you? Yeah, uh, the the theme was uh, yeah another one that that I did, which was uh, great. It was fun. I do not remember, but on that I think I there was a lot of notes and things were added. Uh, I. I, I it, I can't recall it all clearly, but that was definitely not a a quick from we need a theme to being done a couple hours later situation. But I see. I'm very happy with the theme. Oh, absolutely. It, it ranks right up there with one of my uh, top ten, I'd say. Sure. Absolutely. But so they were was... throwing everything back at me that then, back then. I mean, I, I would have to, when things were really going, like second season on Power Rangers, so I had to do that a song every week or two for that sweet valley high background for that had to write the theme for that x-men theme contributing the score vr troopers i don't think i had anything to do with the theme but contributed to the score then any presentations they made any special stuff the execs wanted like saying i'm going to a birthday party could you do go go you know, billy smith smith <laughs> do a version for me I was there 80 hours a week, seven days a week. And I still kind of do seven days a week, but not at that pace. Right. So was the uh, the making of the X-Men theme song then under the Saban label, or was that with someone else? Well, I was always only dealing with either Haim or the president of music, Ron Kanan. That was it. I never met in my really? three years there in an a single network exec ever. And if the network execs were around, they made sure I wasn't. And the reason being because, and I knew the deal going in, these were work for hires. There were usually buyouts. Uh, they would give me a chunk on, on other things in the shows. But they really knew that if I started hanging out with the network producers, just like ha what happened at TV Land, and then somebody from Nickelodeon went, you're the composer, right? Yeah. Oh, we've got this show, Thundermans. We should have a meeting. They knew that once you get into that circle, that slowly I'd get pulled away into the world where you get all your rights. Right. And, <laughs> and so they did everything they could to hide me as much as possible, and that's why I didn't do the first film. Because um, 20th Century Fox was thrilled with the little 
dailies they said and I scored them because I said we're going to do this just like the series and they said yeah yeah that's what we want and so I scored a few bits they were thrilled and then I heard this second hand and then you know Heim and Shuki wanted to take the credit for everything and 20th Century said no this is not how we do it so Heim came up to me and said you're not doing the film and I said, why? He goes, because I want to go in a different direction and uh. we should have a, a film guy. And I'll, I'll never forget, he said to me, you're no John Williams. Are and you wow. kidding me? Wow. And I said, this is right at the end when I'm, I'm not angry, but I'm getting very, I'm tired. And now I'm getting insulted for everything I've done. And um, I do remember at that moment wanting to say, and you're no Walt Disney. But, you know, I didn't want to get escorted violently out of the building. He was very rich at that time and had lots of bodyguards. Just remind him how he passed up Pokemon. That'll uh, that'll be revenge enough. That was after I left. I heard that story. His kids were not allowed to have Pokemon cards. No kidding. He's... Yeah, I mean, he was really, really Man. sad that he missed that. Well, yeah, I mean, who wouldn't be? But I mean, how much is enough at the same yeah. time? Anyone who's going to keep their composer, the Rangers, yeah, like chained to the radiator while they're working. <laughs> you know? Now, well, it was... it'd be, it's the way he made his money. I mean, he did come from nothing, and then he was at one point he had made a, a little bit of money when he was still, I don't know, in Israel or Egypt, and then he lost everything. He had gambled it all on some. <laughs> big outdoor show and there was a freak storm so he was broke so he came to america and he worked his he's brilliant man and he worked his ass off and his first big break was doing the music for inspector gadget so i can see once you get that you know you and it's legal in this country to do it why not continue with that especially when your goal is not just to be rich your goal is to you know, get on that Forbes 500 list. Right. I mean, this is just in his, it's in his DNA. And there's nothing wrong with that. I cannot even believe he's responsible for Inspector Gadget. Like, how many times have I sat here and said that's one of my all-time oh, favorites? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, it's Barely yeah, an episode best. goes by. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a swing version of, uh, and I forgot who wrote it, of a classical piece called In the Hall of the Mountain King. Oh yeah. Which goes dun 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 sort of Oh my it seems so obvious now I never would have made that connection. I just got smacked in the face with knowledge. they didn't I don't think they knew it. I think I brought it up to Shuki once and he went, I don't know what you're fucking talking about and when it happens to everybody don't worry about it sure bringing it up this conversation you know oh so Uh, sensitive (laughs) i guess yeah back up guy well let's uh focus a little bit on this power ranger music first the theme song can you set up where this theme came from because it's ultimately i mean what hooks everyone's attention when that show comes on you got the bright colors the heavy metal riffing it's hard to walk away from it. How did you come up with that little masterpiece right there? They came in and they said, well, Ron Kanan came in and he said, we need a theme for this. And I don't remember if they had like some footage that we watched or some drawings or a logo. 
but it it probably was a little bit of footage. And um, they said, we need a theme for this for Fox tomorrow. And uh, then I remember when when Kanan was walking out, I believe he said, maybe use the word go or something. He had a lot of luck with go gadget go. So maybe use that. And that was it. And I was pissed because there was a song I was working on with my wife's project Fisher. So I sat down and I pulled up, I had already made some for other projects, some fake guitar samples. So I just sat down at the keyboard because I wanted to get it done as quickly as possible. And I just, it just happened. So that groove came up, the melody came up, the whole thing, and it was from the moment that door closed, it was two and a half hours, and it was done with my guide vocal on there, what I thought was gonna be a guide vocal. Because on the original, on the high harmony, it's so bloody high that a couple of the notes I hit a little bit flat, but I went, eh, yeah. <laughs> whoever really sings it will, you know, sure. will have them do it right. And the next day when I came in, they said, well, we played it for the execs at Fox and they are out of their heads thrilled about it. And I said, great, who's gonna sing it? And they said, no, it's done. Don't even change the mix. <laughs> and I said, great. And that's all I thought about it until the first episode came in. I said, well, you want, I can score it like the theme, right? And they said, yeah. So I just started banging out rock stuff except for Bulk and Skull. When I saw them, I went, okay, for him, a tuba, for Skull, a muted trumpet, and then we'll just have this little drum loop thing that I can just trigger that it's a very short drum loop that I can play underneath. And then when I take my, hit a separate key, it ends it. So, so if the scene's gonna be five seconds or 35 seconds, I can just run that underneath the two of them. And they got a kick out of it. I had told them like three, four years ago. I go, you know, your theme was because of your body sizes was a tuba and a muted trumpet thing. And they thought that was really funny. Very nice guys. <laughs> That's what I've heard, that they're uh, really nice. I'd yeah. like to get them on the show sometime. Barely oh, a day should. has gone by. Throughout my entire life from childhood till right now, there's still people I'll see or situations I'll find myself in. And I hear that bulk and skull music <laughs> going in my head. It just interjects itself when the situation's right. I have a loop and of I it could... in iTunes just in case I should ever need it. And I could fly through it because it was the loop and the two other instruments. So it meant, you know, I was like, come on, be a long scene. <laughs> right. So I could really get moving through the thing. So it, uh, <laughs> it worked real well. And then, you know, the big Zords thing, that was not, or maybe it was written originally to picture, and then we enhanced it a bit. And then music editors got involved as the library was evolving. And once I had five or 600 cues for the thing, then I only had a score. I would do like the nine minutes of the show that needed to be done, and then a music editor would drop in the rest, which was great. That's incredible, the process. It, it was a machine. We were just a machine. A well-oiled one at that. So Yeah, it was, go it was good. 
this this whole album of uh, songs, which uh, ended up being the Power Ranger Rock Adventure album, and then later Power Rangers uh, Redux. How did the rest of these songs come to be? Did they then come to you say, you know, we just need a handful of songs to make this album? Were they just kind of done no, over was, time, we, or do, do a song? Because the songs, because the because the theme was so huge, and the show was the biggest show. Uh, you know, in, in children's oh, it history, was it was it was beating everything. <laughs> so I think one day they said, start writing songs for it. I'm not sure what the first song was fight. It's got to have been at least three or four episodes in. And then it just worked so well that they said, okay, do another one, do another one, do another, do another. And so I just kept banging those out while doing the score and, and, everything else that was thrown at me and um it was a lot of fun and occasionally i'd say can i please bring in a guitar player to do the solo on this because it'll really save me a lot of time because that's the hardest thing to do on a keyboard especially sure. then now it's kind of a breeze and add that personality so then I was allowed the whopping $150 budget to bring in a buddy to play on stuff. Or Ron Kanan was uh, a guitar player, and he played on some of the solos. He would just come in and bang it out, and then you know, I could move on and get back to the score or whatever else I was working with, working on. So... These songs were not only just, you know, a big part of the show, but then when they put that album out, the Power Rangers, a rockin' adventure, a rock adventure, I don't remember exactly. A rock adventure. Yes. Um, I was obsessed with it. It was the, you know, on-the-go cassette Power Ranger episode oh, yeah. you could take with you. And Couldn't beat that when you're young. No, I listened to that thing till it snapped, I think, uh, just so many times. But, you know, as you get older... You forget these things. And I when I did uncover those songs again, it was so much fun listening to them. But that album had, you know, like clips from the show laced over the songs like Rangers, you gotta stop Rita and stuff like that. So <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't ever there. It was originally just the songs. It was done, the artwork was done, the entire thing was done and mastered. Right. And they came in, they go, Bad news. We're getting uh a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on with, uh, you know, and they're blaming the music for violent acts amongst children. Oh, so let's soften it up. Grab. Um, I had I remember now I, I remember this really well. I remember Ron going. Um, so what I've done is I had the dialogue editors grab you a bunch of stuff that you can sample and throw it in wherever you can. He goes, you don't have to overdo it, wink, wink, but, you know, throw it in wherever you can, and we're going to have to do that on this. And I went, okay. <laughs> if, if it must be done, it must be done. And that's why all that stuff ended up over it. And, you know, fast forward to the film, I think that's why I heard, I haven't seen it, they used the version cut in 1995 for the first film because all those masters they had. Saban doesn't have any of the original recordings. Are you kidding me? So I had heard a rumor, and I'll never know for sure, that when Disney bought the franchise in 2000, 2001, that they destroyed oh. everything that 
existed because they wanted to make sure they, you know, they wanted to take it over and have their composers do it. It's their property now. They paid a fortune for it. They wanted a fresh start. Yeah. So I think they went, should we store this stuff or should we? And they probably just said, just, you know, take the small digital audio tapes, smash them, take the two inch masters and, you know, burn them or throw them in a dump. Who cares? We're never using that shit again. Good right. Lord, isn't that what Chairman Mao did in China? You know, <laughs> destroy the old culture? Well, that would be, I'm sure, you know what? I bet you Disney probably has a big burning pit. And maybe at night they all come out with their, you know, holding their torches and burning their robes. Other stuff that they bought. It's like Fantasia, where yeah. all the brooms yeah. are, but it's all torches. Some, <laughs> Some hooded prelate in a Mickey mask going to the great pyre. Yeah, Mickey gets to walk out with the original acetates. Like, go, Mickey, go, Mickey. I'm going to burn these. I'm going to burn these. Oh, leave no traces. Oh. Yeah. There it is. Oh, perfect. Well, so, yeah, those were gone. because, And the only reason I know nobody has them is because uh, I got a letter about eight months ago, an email from one of the assistants at Saban saying, Hi, Ron, we're looking for your isolated vocal. Do you have it? If so, please send on the theme. And I wrote back and said, don't have it. But I recut the stuff, and it's verbatim, so I do have it if you need it. But we have to work out a deal if you want it. I never heard back. <laughs> right, because then they'd have to credit you that way, correct? Yeah, they'd have to, they could even say sung by... But they'd have to do an actual licensing deal. Because I re-recorded it, I own that master. I don't own the copyright. I don't own the recording. But I own the master of that. So uh, never heard back, surprisingly. That was very odd. I expected them to come back with a friendly, happy offer and some right. flowers. But uh, <laughs> We made a mistake, then, Ron. Come back. Yeah. Please help us. <laughs> But I also heard from some of his employees that my name's not even allowed to be brought up. And we never, ever, ever, even when I left, we never, Haim and I never had any argument ever. We always got along. The only thing that I can think is that he is sick to fucking death of hearing about how Ron Wasserman wrote his theme, his oh, most famous yeah. theme. And it must just after years, you know, maybe hanging out at some high-end dinners with the wealthy and them going, so you didn't write that thing? You know, a couple of that. And that alone mm -hmm. could probably make him go, fuck Wasserman. Yeah. Really. Which and, is ridiculous because why would you, uh, even the business aspect aside, why would you expect to take, I don't know, it's just kind of a shitty thing. I know yeah. it was part of the agreement, but it's still shitty. Believe me, you've watched people go up, composers walk up and take away an Academy Award for a film they haven't ever scored. Mm. You could have seen it, you know, in the last... I, I, I'm not citing any specifics, but I do know that the Academy nods, you know, the uh, people who are up to win is announced, and I've had friends in places just saying, and then the guy who actually scored the film walks out of his... 
studio and looks at everybody and just goes, don't anybody fucking talk to me. I'm going home. <laughs> wow. Because his name's not on it, and he's not going to get the Academy Award. So it is incredibly common. Wow. Plus, you have some TV composers, not so much now. Now they're more library production houses. And I'll go to the awards things, and I know their deals, and they're going up and taking the awards for having these scores on, you know, they did 40 reality shows, and it's two guys. That's amazing. You know, it, it's, it's the way the business works. It's part of paying dues coming up. Sure. It's, it's the way it is. I just unfortunately, fortunately, but unfortunately, you know, wrote something that would have made me beyond, beyond super rich and right. had to give the rights away. But I have no regrets about it because I stick to my deals. Absolutely. And you still created one of the best, yeah. if not the best, uh, theme songs that's ever been. Not to mention would the opening album. It really would hurt if nobody knew I did it. You know, I'd hate sure. to be that guy holding the sign at the freeway saying, I wrote the Power Rangers. <laughs> <laughs> but the world knows it, and the world knows what happened. And that only got out because after I left, there was a lot of interviews, and... Um, he really couldn't counter it because uh, even though Shuki is a composer, Haim is not at all. Right. I, I'm not sure if he could even whistle. So, so the when, world knows. When you were in the throes of doing Redux then, when you were getting ready to put that out, was there any kind of uh, resistance from Saban at all? Did they get a hold of you say, hey, you can't do this? Did they try to stop you from doing that and having your name on it at all? No, and I've never, ever, ever heard a word from them. No, well, first of all, they can't, because this is one of those odd gray areas of the business. Once a song has been released, audio only, any song in the world, now you, you have to register with a, uh, I can't remember what uh, company I went through, you have to register where the publisher is notified that you're going to do a cover of the song, and then they'll receive their a little bit of money because you know everything's on youtube and people rip everything but um they'll receive their little bit of money from wherever not from me so it's all legal Man. but what's really rare is the original artist going back being able to re-record the song and the reason i was able to do that is because we never had any agreements saying i couldn't i had artist agreements with them and the phone may ring someday and say, you know, we want to talk to you about this because we haven't been maybe paid fully or, or maybe there's something like that. And I'll go, great, I've been waiting for your call because the last statement I got from you guys was in 1997. So we've got some, we better book a four-hour meeting here. Right. So we can dig way back. And I think that's my, they just go, let it go. <laughs> let's not stir it up let's not stir it up right or he doesn't care or he's or he's seen that or heard about it and went like god bless him let him keep it what do i care i made that why you why i was you know peeing a minute ago right. <laughs> <laughs> well i'm so glad you uh did put this out because it was a chance to rediscover the same album Again, you know, as a child, having the one with the samples over it, having that awesome adventure, but then as an adult, being able to enjoy those songs 
again. And then hearing the story, uh, you know, the, the album tells two stories, one of the Power Rangers and then two of your story, uh, your frustration, rather, uh, working at Saban. I was wondering if you could go into a little bit of detail on that, maybe a few of the songs. You'd already mentioned I Know a Place. Yeah, let me pull up the, because forget the titles sometimes. Oh, I've got a few. This of is the other here. good part about, you know, <laughs> you write something and then move on. Right. Uh, but I'm sure I have it here in iTunes. Be easier to pick out the ones that have the uh, most interesting stories. Naturally, sure. I don't have it here. Uh, okay, Fight. Well, Fight was the first song. So Fight is pretty much about Power Rangers, even though, or angst in my life. So that one we can just leave kind of open. And Combat was written right after that. It's just about the stress I felt during the job. I was, again, not upset about not getting the rights and everything. Right. But there were a couple situations where just a little bit of political BS was starting, and I was starting the sense wow, this is, I'm actually being quashed here, not creatively, but being quashed in every part of my life. They're trying to keep me down. It's like being married to a supermodel and waking up and going, you know, you're not that good one. Tick-tock, tick-tock, you're running out of time. No time to stop, you stay up close So that came out. Um, we Need a Hero is a political song because not even so much when I grew up, but prior to that, there was always superheroes and there was the people that everyone looked up. And that could be Kennedy or it could be a television thing, uh, character. And I started seeing that as markets were getting more diverse and there were smaller niche markets as they were coming I just felt there was never going to be a hero again. No person, no leader, be it for you know African Americans or for the country or anything, it was just going to kind of become corporate America. And I'm really, really sad that that's really what ended up happening. really a shame unite is a song about uh ron wasserman aaron waters the singer and then the mighty raw which they decided to throw on top of it to add some confusion and uh kind of bury me a little deeper from the public because people are like what's the mighty raw thing and i said one day i walk in and they go you could be aaron waters but now you're the mighty raw too and i said what why <laughs> the mighty raw but aside from that, you know, ugh. Right. Everybody knows Aaron Waters. He's the guy. It's my middle name, and Wasserman is Waterman. So I took Aaron Waters. And when I'd be singing, 
and I had notes for myself singing. I'd split my personality. No, I'm not crazy. And I'd yell at Aaron <laughs> Waters. I'm like, all right, let's go back and get the verse again, Aaron. You know, it was just a little joke. And sure. it turned into that. So Unite was kind of like, we need to leave. This is later on this song. We need to leave. Let's the three of us. Let's get out of here. <laughs> right. <laughs> was probably written at the time I left or right after. I think I did that for the film. And that is a middle finger to not just Saban, but a lot of people just saying, it's, you know, the saying goes, success is the greatest revenge. what that song is about um 541 is just to take off on the musketeers um all for one and one for all but there was five so the four wouldn't work so i made it all five for one cause twist on that um i know a place which isn't here we already said it's about a bar around the corner right um cross my line that is all about the year no john williams really that's exactly what it's about that moment where i realized i'm not doing the film i'm not going to get my name on the screen i'm not going to get the it was a sixty thousand dollar budget to score the film which i desperately needed at that not desperately but really needed at that point would have been great i'd never made you know one check of sixty thousand dollars ever right right so that was a definite um you've crossed my line As my wife would tell you, I can be thrown up against the wall and abused, but once I decide it's over and done, it's over and it's done. So that was a, um, you've crossed my line. That's amazing. I love hearing stories behind oh, yeah. these songs, and especially some of my favorites, I Will Win and um, We Need a Hero. Probably uh, We Need a Hero because it's got that awesome breakdown in the middle where it goes from that hard rock sound to really chill uh kind of melodic groove and uh, your yeah, wife and then I had my, singing yeah I had, a, I had a beggar to do it but <laughs> but she did it but then it just comes back full force with that that rock it's just i don't know it's a roller coaster of emotion that one and uh 
it's awesome to hear there was some actual emotion behind it. And like he said, you know, it's so great hearing the story that influenced a song. On the one hand, I feel like it's almost a shame more people aren't aware of, like, the depth of experience that went into making this music. On the other, I get to feel really cool being, like, one of the few who know the story. (laughs) The insiders, if you will. Yeah, Yeah, and I didn't didn't ever mention any of that for, for... Quite a while because I a I think I forgot to tell you the truth I probably just blocked it and um, b the show you know everything is even though my first time I went oh my God look at all these people somebody said you got to sign up with this company American Online they have a chat board about you and I went on and chimed in and signed in and even though there was a lot of communication back then, you know, since Facebook and all this and the internet right. and things have evolved so well, then it really was much easier to do interviews. I mean, people couldn't record off their portable phone back then. You know, they had a suction cup against their regular phone even in 2003 and recorded into a portable recorder. So the communications got much better, which has uh, been wonderful. I kind of got scattered on that one. It's going somewhere with it. Sorry. No that happens. So what was it then that uh, spurred you then to record Power Rangers Redux, to revisit uh, all these songs after uh, your affiliation with Saban? I'd probably gotten, I have a, uh, things broken down in the folders, but over the years, what I've kept, I've responded to like, 100,000 Fisher emails, about 80,000 Power Ranger mails. And that doesn't count, just direct emails. And for years and years, people have said, I wish I could get those songs without the dialogue on it, you know, because I'm getting a little older and it's kind of silly if I'm blasting this song and I hear, (laughs) (laughs) so I I went, so in 2012, I had some downtime and I said, okay, I'm going to just do the first verse of Go Go Power Rangers. I'm going to see if I even have that voice anymore. Because I don't sing. My wife's the singer. Um, Nobody calls me and says, and you've got to sing it. Never, <laughs> never happened since I left Savant. It's the same way I've never been able to do a rock score since Savant. I'll bring it up and they'll go like, nah, you know, it's too heavy. It'll scare the kids. It's never. It never works. Sure. It doesn't work. I'm like, Power Rangers? They're like, that was then. It won't work now. I'm like, okay, we'll do something different. But I decided, okay, I'll do that. So I threw up the – I just quickly mocked up the first verse and the chorus and did exactly what I did before. And the moment I started singing, I was back in that studio at Saban. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, I did the same routine. I gargled ice cold uh, Diet Pepsi, which kind of tightens up my chords. And after maybe five minutes, I found the sound, and then I doubled it, and then I threw a harmony on, and I went, I'm going to do the song. And then after I finished the song, I went, I'm going to do another song. (laughs) And then it became an obsession, and it took about a month or two to get through because I would compare it back to the original version so that the tempos were perfectly locked. Oh, wow. Because they were magical then. 
and most of them are all at one tempo. There's very few variables in the tempo. But I went back and locked to those, and I'd have to really go back and listen because those recordings are much thinner, but I'd have to go back and go, okay, there's the bass drum pattern because you can't. And so I tried to nail it, and I, na I got so close that in iTunes people started saying, these are just remastered. It's like they're not remastered. <laughs> they're no, different. They're not. And if you listen but, closely, you can tell. Especially on the guitar solos. Those Absolutely. are all completely different. I get it on most of the vocals and the grooves. They do sound the same. And when I heard some commercials for products come out, I would grab the commercial online. I would compare it against mine. And I'd go, okay, they, they used one line from the original on this because I held out the end of the word at the end of the verse, you know, a quarter second longer. So... Right. So I had to keep a close eye on that for a bit. But um, it just became a labor of love. And I put it out and I announced it on Ranger Board and people started gobbling it up. And it's only gotten better. And it's been going strong ever since. So I went, I, that was a good idea to do that. <laughs> and uh, Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll second that. Um, but you probably had a pretty big surge in popularity with it again with the movie coming out recently yeah uh i had posted an itunes chart of statistics and then um at spotify it's it's really search and what's interesting is it follows the same exact chart as the movie's popularity and income no kidding so it goes right dead along with that chart there's well, obviously, they weren't earning any income prior to it, but you could just watch the uh, chart climb up from January and for my stuff, and then the huge surge right before the film, and then that first weekend, it was just really, really massive. I, I haven't really looked for since I posted that thing, so I got to... Let me go look to trending here. I love all this stuff. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> I never, before this, I never even knew that I could go see what's going on with this stuff. So let's say in the last seven days at Spotify, there's been, uh, well, we'll just call it 49,000 streams. The only bad day was the second. It's been very strong in the last 30 days. This is for the entire album, mainly Go Go Power Rangers. 175,504. <laughs> so something must have happened on the... 14th because there's a surge there and then it really peaks on the 24th that's like the highest day and for the last 90 days 351 and i know for the year it's around seven or eight hundred thousand because it was oh. always averaging ten thousand ten thousand a day at spotify that was been the average for a long time which i find absolutely shocking these are good songs. It's not shocking, but wow, those are some crazy... I think of our numbers and how we're always <laughs> yeah. trolling them and how we're so gracious for every little download. But to talk about these kind of numbers, my God. I think that's a pretty strong indicator of the public interest. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 you know, people started... Uh, after the film came out, they gave the composer a little bit of grief about not using the rock stuff. So I went on and said, you know, brilliant score, which I did listen to the whole score and um, tried to get some people to stop attacking the guy. 
uh, he didn't have any choice over it that You're... they threw in the version from 95 and yeah. um and he said uh, always been a fan of your work uh, whether it's true or not i don't know but you know we had that little bit of communication which was really nice and um it's uh it's interesting i love how you can you can almost get to anybody now look you can even get to the president all you have to do is post like i don't like your nose hair you had a nose hair out in that meeting next thing you know there's a tweet about you it's never been easier to interface with the leadership no it's never been easier there was a, a massive surge and and as i look at um iTunes streaming, you know, it's kind of almost back down to where it was since January at about 5,000 a day. Wow. Uh, but this at the peak surge, it was at, you know, around 23,000 a day. Incredible. So Spotify, and, and I learned a lot too because I'm a, I love Apple Music streaming. Um, but I didn't know Spotify was so much bigger. I figured, because, you know, with all the news releases, it seems like they're getting pretty even Steven on their streaming business, but Apple's nowhere near where Spotify's at. Really? That's surprising. It is. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like they're about, you know, four or 500% higher on streams. Wow. Now, you had uh, mentioned, you, you say you did check out the score to the new movie, Brian Tyler's score yeah on yeah. apple music so he'll see i did <laughs> <laughs> it was uh it was an amazing uh score i fell in love with it it has a very kind of you could almost like do yoga to it if you wanted to <laughs> but uh one thing that he's they, great he he's really great. is one thing they utilize in that score that i love was that 80s synth noise that's coming back since uh stranger things kind of brought it back with it i'm really song. pleased to see that making a comeback. And i'm seeing it in other places too i was kind of curious what your opinion is on that or if you uh yourself planned on using that effect at all it's uh it's a tip of the hat to um well i haven't had anything where i can use that yet sure because when i hear um we'd like to hear something that's very it's always the same thing something you from the other room, you'll recognize it's our show, and we want it to be cutting edge and sound completely different and really be hip and modern and, <laughs> you know, try to push the envelope. And the moment I do that, they go like, that's an interesting idea. Could we please back it up? They're always three years <laughs> behind. But I think that synth stuff is a tip of the hat to Tron. Because when Tron came out, mm. I went, the game has changed. <laughs> There's going to be guys that are just doing synth loops and drum loops or, and developing their own sounds, and you still have to be talented. But this opens up a whole new world of scoring. Now we can go ultra-modern and finally kind of like how movies have evolved so significantly in the last 20 years visually. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now we can finally break the chains of that normal 85-piece orchestra. Right. So. I think that's probably I, – I was watching the clip of him conducting and when it comes in because I, I know he's listening to a click. And, um, and there's other synth parts in there too, and that's probably just as far as he was allowed to go. And that's the stuff he probably did at home and then wrote all the orchestral, orchestral stuff around it. But I, I love it, and I hope it slowly morphs more into that direction. Yeah, absolutely. 
but it's nice. It's nice that he did it. But I think, you know, Tron opened the door for that because sure. there hadn't been anything like it prior to that. And you make the interesting point also that, you know, people are realizing a score doesn't have to always be strictly just orchestra, which uh, was right. demonstrated in this movie. And also uh, Logan, which also came out just a month or two ago, had uh, that score had a lot of uh, electric guitar and drums and stuff yeah. in it. Yeah. Very uh, like a spaghetti western spaghetti sound western, absolutely. to it. Very, very good. So I hadn't noticed that, but... Uh, yeah, you're definitely right. And I, I love yeah. to, to watch a movie that lets the score breathe, you know, yes. where they're not just settling on, okay, this is background music, this is secondary to the dialogue or the action. Right. Something where it's really musically driven always stands out to me. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Well, that's, uh, that's always up to the director. And, and there's a lot of times where they say, this is, this is your minute and a half to shine. There'll be no dialogue and we'll duck fully in effects. And this is your moment. In television, unfortunately, it's always dialogue-driven. You know, I would love to get a show like that someday where they go, and this minute is yours. Right. Or this 20 seconds. But uh, it rarely, rarely happens in television. In film, it's, a, it's, it's imperative that you set stuff up like that. Sure. So I'm glad they gave them a lot of space. Well, this has uh, been a lot of fun, man, talking with you about uh, just this music, where it's come from. It's so amazing for me. But before we let you go, another thing we have to touch on is uh, your work with your wife, Kathy, and uh, Fisher. Right. Now, you uh, met her in your days at Saban, correct? We were introduced by Ron Kanan, and we started writing songs. And the night that I was working on the Power Ranger theme to uh, do a callback here, I wanted to work on one of the songs with her. Not that she was coming in that night to sing, but I wanted to work on this song. After I finished the Power Ranger theme, I was able to finish the other song that ironically ended up, uh, and by the way, between that time, so I wrote that song. Then when Sweet Valley High came along, I did have to beg her to sing the theme of Sweet Valley High, which opened up the entire world for her to do she did so many national commercials between 96 and 2004, my head was spinning. <laughs> and, and either I composed them or she was working with everybody in town. So Sweet Valley High, thank you, opened up, uh, you know, really did wonders for her. So anyways, the song I was working on that night, um, I don't even know how the guy got a hold of it because we were sending around demos on cassettes to record companies. That's what you did that. And one guy heard one of the songs and said, I want to put this in a film called Great Expectations with um, Ethan Hawke and Gwyneth Paltrow. And we said, okay. (laughs) Very little resistance. And so I mocked up the string parts, and I knew a great cellist with the L.A. Philharmonic, and she said, I'll hire the string players. We're just going to, we'll need 12 players for this re-recorded the stuff at Capitol Records. The song came out on the film. We're under a one-year option with Atlantic. We're going to get picked up, we thought. We get singled out in the press as being the next big thing because there was a lot of big known artists on it. But everybody loved the song we did. And uh, Atlantic refused to sign us. And that option expired. My wife made a call, got us some Lilith Fair, gigs on the B stage. So we had like Arizona, Texas, 
no, Arizona, Oklahoma, and Kansas, all in a row. And uh, so we got in the car. It was she and I and our guitar player, and we went to Arizona. It was 117 degrees, and we stood out on the stage, and there was like 500 people there. And I was thinking, oh, that's so nice of them. They're so, like, probably really high, you know, when they're just, they're just like, dancing around, and they don't know who the fuck we are. And it turns out a majority of them got in line to get her to sign autograph of the Great Expectations album. And I went, wow. we have an audience. And then the audience grew at the second one, and Sarah McLaughlin loved my wife's voice, so called her up every night to sing with her. And then um, we got back to L.A., and I went, well, even though it's the kiss of death, it's like vanity publishing, let's go ahead and do our own CD. So we did the first one. I uploaded some songs because mp3.com had just gone live. And I said, let's see if we get some downloads. Like the first day, there was eight. I remember going, we got eight downloads. It's great. And then it jumped to... In a short time, it jumped to eight or then 10 and 20,000 a day. <laughs> and then Time Magazine contacted us and said, we want to do an article. We said, sure. And then CNN came to us to one of the gigs and did a feature on us. And then the record companies started calling. Now, I knew they had a 98% failure rate. Every artist that you ever hear, there are nine Point seven more that you'd never hear of, that never break through in any way. So all I wanted back was the option to our indie record if we decided to go our separate ways after one deal. Nobody in town would agree to it except Doug Morris, the head of Universal Music. Uh, we never really cut, recut the first song. They just sort of tweaked it. They did a mix that was verbatim, but uh, we added stuff to the other songs and you know, spent all that record company money doing that. <laughs> and then a radio station in San Diego played one of the MP3s and the phones lit up. And since it was a military town, a lot of husbands were out on their tours. And um, women were pulling over on the side of the freeway crying, mm -hmm. hearing the song, I Will Love You. So uh, we were down there about two days later and we had a year and a half adventure that was unbelievable. The only problem is, even though we were doing incredibly well everywhere except Los Angeles, the hardest market at radio, the CDs weren't being shipped. And even though I hired a gal to prove that to the record company and say, I spoke to Joe Smith, Warehouse Records, two o'clock to so-and-so day, can't get CD had 60 people come in today, can't get it, presented it to Universal, and they said, ah, we hear this from all of our artists. That's not the reason it's not selling. So we terminated the deal after one. I got back the rights. The next day, I remember the first call was from the Ally McBeal people saying we want to license it for uh, something with, there we go back to Robert, Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. <laughs> to do all the promos for that. We heard we can deal with you now instead of Universal. I went, done five minutes later so i was we were on a roll it was great for a couple years and still goes on to this day because we never gave up those rights wow. that's incredible we had a great adventure and we did more cds and um you know it still gets the sales are still healthy to this day i don't know if we'll do anything else 
it doesn't occur to me to write a song for Fisher anymore because of just the overwhelming amount of television work. Sure. Only so much, but so many hours in a fun. day. Right. Well, I, I have to jump in. I feel like I'm having my Golden Girls picture at Sicily 1941 moment. <laughs> but um, I, I was a manager at a, a CD store in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so oh. I remember the moment I heard, I will love you. And it was... Oh, my gosh. It yes. was epic for me. And it, it was really a big moment. And, you know, it was such a a low tech time for finding things on the internet, but I found it and I found the PDF of the, the free sheet music. And so I, I printed it and, and I had true North, uh, from, from the moment I found it and, and just fell in love with every song. Anyway, I, I started playing it on the piano singing and, I played oh, I'm it. getting chills. This, uh, well, I'm so just, appreciative of this. It's so just, great to hear this. Well, trust me, I'm appreciative of you, you and Kathy both. Um, but I played it for my best friend from high school. Um, I said, oh, this song, her ethereal voice. I mean, she's, you know, an angel. And so I played this song and I said, someday I'm going to have this at my wedding. This, I, I know this will be my wedding song. And she said, well, why don't you play it for my wedding? So in December of 2000, I ended up playing it and singing it at her wedding. And oh my gosh. I, mm-hmm. I know. And I, it was such, it was just a, a moment for me and a moment for her. And it was, it was, it was gorgeous. It perfectly encaptured, uh, their time. But I wrote to you, I, I emailed the official Fisher, uh, email and I and I told you and I don't know if it was like the week before or the week after she got married but I was saying you know I I've I adore your uh, voice thinking it was just Kathy at that moment and I was thinking, well we marketed it that way because nobody wants to see the guy I mean even in the video I do a cameo in the background I'm pushing a moon on oh, the yeah. stage like a crescent moon but I made it clear to them from the beginning I go nobody wants to see the guy. <laughs> And I don't mind. Even when we did Leno, I ran back. She went up to the couch. Yes. No one wants to see the guy. No one wants to hear husband, especially. Well, no one wants to see the guy. And, well, I I disagree, but I, in that moment, I, I wrote and I said how wonderful she was. She That True North was a life changer for me. It just every song was beyond beautiful. And you wrote back to me. Almost immediately, you personally wrote back to me almost immediately and said, "We've just come from the the Tonight Show with Jay Leno," oh, and shit. I thought, <laughs> "What you know? What a kind, gracious person! The, this transformative CD, this transformative music for me." And you took the time to write me back, so uh, I, I'm so thankful, and it stays with me. I mean, here we are, all these years yeah, later. Yeah, exactly. Well, so. well, here's here's the thing. First of all, Kathy is horrible at getting back to anybody. <laughs> I have to I have to beg her to get back to me at times. It's a good thing I see her every day. But but so I I took over that job, but I never pretended to be her ever. But when I was in my teens or younger, I can't remember. My friend and I wrote to the keyboard player of this band, Chicago. <laughs> oh man, I've never heard just of this. Just a small outfit. <laughs> just you elaborate to say, a little bit. Who is this? <laughs> really great. You're a great player. It never occurred to me to write to Elton John, the guy who was my major, most major influence. But anyways, um, and he wrote us back. He said, "I'm sitting on our plane, and we're 
crossing to the next state, I wanted to tell you guys thank you so much. And that made such an impression on me that I figured if, and I never even planned on going into the music business, I thought I might be a photographer or work at Walmart for all I knew. <laughs> I said, if anybody ever writes me, I'm going to answer it. And I've answered everything always. And it's all because I got that one letter and what it meant to me. And now in a business where nobody that's done anything substantial in the business, they don't get back to anybody. And people I work with don't even get back to me. It makes me work twice as hard answering every email and every question all the time. Yeah. Well, 18 years later, you, you've made an impact on me, really. And I hope, hope, hope that the two of you make more music together because really the world needs to hear it. The the moment will come those because those songs were all really honest. I mean that that was another song that was a five minute right. I had a phone call with a male friend of mine, and it's the first guy I've known my whole life that called me crying hysterically because the girl he loved, which believe me, he's lucky that she left him. <laughs> left. <laughs> and he was hysterical, and I was so touched by that I went wow this guy really opened up to me that was beautiful moment uh, he just must just feel like he you know he's never going to get over her he's he'll, he'll always love her and I just remember sitting down and coming up with that little da 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 and it just popped out so I did Till the blah, 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 till the da, 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 I will love you, love you, till the blah. And I gave it to Kathy. I said, fill in the blanks with something really clever here. <laughs> and she came back with the rest. And I said, this is a nice song. No one will probably ever want to listen to it, but I like it. Went, I love it. Till my body is dust. Till my soul is no more. I And, uh, yeah, it was a fluke. When I uploaded it, I never thought it would be the song. That went, Nobody likes slow stuff. Oh, yeah, it, it mm -hmm. was massive. It really was. I mean, it became the most downloaded song in Internet <laughs> yeah. history at that time, right? So, yeah, it was it, it was great. And and when it initially I remember when we went to the station in San Diego, they said, we got to show you something. And they pulled out some faxes, like from a station, top 40 station in Utah, because the program directors all know each other. And he said, our program director contacted his buddy in Utah and said, you've got to play this song. And he go, here's the first fax, his response. How can I play this dirge piece of shit ballad on my station? Everybody <laughs> will tune out. Wow. And he goes, and then here's the next one a day later. Oh my God, we played it at 11 at night and the phone's been ringing off the hook ever since. And that's the most important thing, the radio, is the call-ins. Oh yeah. And then then they said, and it also happened here, I can't remember. And then wow. it, it caught fire. 
everywhere except LA. So we would go places, we'd be in Boston, we played at like the Hat Shell. I mean, we're getting police escorts, you know, just because there's a lot of traffic, not because we need to be guarded. <laughs> uh, but we're getting that, we're at that level. Then you go back to LA, they're like, Fisher who? I never heard of that, what? I will love you? Oh, it's a piano ballad? Blech. Wow. <laughs> so it was it was a trip. This is the only market, even though I now live outside of LA, just 30 miles out, but nothing ever happened here. So we can go play for 5,000 people, you know, playing with um, David Gray or oh, yeah. whoever else we played with, but uh, come back home and it was always pretty much the same 500 people anywhere we played, hmm. which isn't bad, but you know, we weren't going to ever play Staples here. <laughs> Staples Center. Why is the uh, market so much harder there? Because it's the heart of the business. No. Saturated. Even, I mean, you've got to be, you've got to have uh, a breakout of, you know, like Guns and Roses to come back. And then, of course, at that point, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember hanging out with them. I hung out with them all the time. Weren't you living in Michigan then? <laughs> oh, no, there were times I came to L.A. and we'd hang out all the time. I, I know them all personally. Then how come you had to buy your ticket? We're sitting way back here. Look, I met them once at a party. <laughs> <laughs> but it all, becomes, it all becomes that when it's that huge. Right. Until then, the industry here is just like, that's nice. You have a song doing well elsewhere. So do I. So does my cousin. I, here's my script. Here's a movie. I mean, it's because it's we're in the middle of the business, which is one of the reasons I had to move out of there is because it was just so overwhelming that every single person had a project. And I swear, I, I hope every I always wish every single one of them would succeed. Some of them, it was obvious it wouldn't. You want that. But when that's all you talk about at every party, at every single thing, and then the jealousy you're confronted with when something finally happens for you is mm. just, you know, they want to put a curse on you. They want you to die. You just took their spot. So uh, mm. we just had to get away from it. Oh, I can't blame you there. Wow. And now it's really great because I've been doing it for so long. So everybody's... Uh, Especially by, you know, my age, it's something either happened or you're terrified or you invented an app and, you know, you're way richer than me and, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're fine with whatever goes on. Sure, <laughs> it's, exactly. That's it, yeah, better. But that, those times of, of paying the dues really were odd. And, 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 and you would get jealous, too, back you know, in the 80s when I was in bands and somebody else got signed, you're like, why didn't we get signed? Right. But it wasn't, there was, no, I was never mad. I was just like, well, what about me? Poor <laughs> <laughs> me. <laughs> me. That's probably where I would have been. Yeah. <laughs> I can sympathize with that. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's, that's uh. a good driving force, too, that the moment something happens, you go, like, it's happening, it's happening, I'm available I only need to sleep from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. I'm available always. <laughs> and that's uh, and that goes on to this day. Uh, I'll get notes for a Monday morning mix. I'll get notes sometimes on on the Thundermans at uh, 11 p.m. on Sunday. And wow. I'll, my studio's only a block and a half from the house. I'll just, you know, drag my ass over here and do the fixes. Sometimes it's uh, 
half hour and sometimes it's four or five hours. But Incredible. that's the way the business is. Incredible. So you had already kind of mentioned that uh, you and your wife don't have any big Fisher plans for the future, but what, what is next for Ron Wasserman? What should we expect next from you? Well, to tell you the truth, I Thundermans might be in its last season, or it might not, because the show will be their most successful, longest-running sitcom. No kidding. So there's, yeah, we're going to beat uh, Hannah Montana... Was that the Disney show? What was the big one on? Anyways, we're going to beat it by one episode when we're done with our season. Oh, wow. <laughs> Stick it. And the numbers are always really pretty big on it. But the cast is growing up. Right. So it's kind of up in the air. Um, so, and the with the numbers on the first date show, that one could get picked up for another season. And... Uh, again, my buddy Todd Milner, who's partners with Sean Hayes, who starred in Will and, oh. Will and Grace and whatnot. Right. He, he um, you know, they've had a production company, and I'm meeting with them on Tuesday to kind of discuss uh, starting a music division there, which I started to chat with them in 2013, and now they're really ready to start that. So I may move not into an executive thing, but I may try to steer um, them on that side of the business because uh, that's another thing I can thank Saban for. I learned everything about publishing, copyrights, what you should own, what you have to be very careful about. Right. So, um, so it can be beneficial for all of us there. And they have some stuff coming up in production that I'll score. But their hands are tied on certain shows because, you know, they hire writers and they hire a showrunner. And that showrunner understandably wants to use the guy he used on five other shows. That's why I lost Grimm. I had Grimm at the beginning, and the showrunner wanted to use the guy he had used, I think, on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So I got the call, and the guy wants to use the guy he knows. I'm like, that's yeah, normal. It happens all the time. And then, now I'm crying. They did, you know, 130 episodes. That would have been great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and those oh, scores yeah. are really hard because, you know, when you got stuff in the field, you got to do stuff like this. I'll play the right notes this time. You got to go. could do that for four minutes that's really like easy <laughs> oh, you, you, you have struck us all with wonder right here. We're like, he's, playing We're all he's really playing for us <laughs> <laughs> so yeah that's uh wow. that would have been a fun show and i'd given them all this cool stuff i went out and recorded diesel sure. trucks and then dropped them by three octaves and stretched them out by 2600 percent so you had all these otherworldly sounds going on and they loved it but that's the way it goes that's incredible what a cool so business th maybe there'll be another one soon i am working on a another criminal based show but it's not a network show and i'm not scoring the picture i'm just writing underscore for it um 
for the foreseeable future along with Thunderman. So pretty happy with the schedule too. Plus the first 25 years since Power Rangers really was a hard grind of seven days a week. I would try to keep it down to 16 hours on weekends. So I don't mind that I have a free afternoon now to go mountain bike or something. <laughs> All right. Well, Because it was never, ever about money. Never even, that, that's always been secondary. It was always about just get the work and get the job and do the best you can. And now it's a little bit more about like, get some exercise, get moving. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I was just going to say, I watched First Dates uh, this morning on the DVR, and mm. I loved the the changes in music. You know, you'd go from the syncopation to, you know, depending on the stereotypical uh, person in that moment. I don't know. I just wondered how you fleshed that out. Were you watching all of their edited scenes and then saying, okay, this deserves? Well, originally, I did, but they were to different edits. And then uh, Ellen DeGeneres, just, and I think it was her too, they wanted a different edit on the show. So even though the first date had been done and edited and scored, her business partner wanted to re-edit and reshape the show a little bit. And then he brought in his composer. And then NBC said, please put back some of the previous music that we had. They don't know who I am on this. And so it has the new edit, which I never saw. I just watched part of one at the NBC site this morning. I knew how much of my stuff was in it, a lot. I've got about 75% of the show. Wow. But it was interesting to watch his edit from what I remember seeing a year ago. And I think he did a great job. It, 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 it was more diverse and more interesting how he ended up doing re-editing everything. Hmm. But it was fun listening. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's me. That's me. That's me. <laughs> oh, that, one, that one's not me. That one's not me. It's not me. It sounds like something I did. But I did notice, I think I got um, the other guy maybe um, sounds a little bit like some of the stuff I submitted. But the thing is, you've learned, you learn to watch and catch all the twists and turns as you do this more and more and you go right there, we've got to go to a different feel. We should swing it a little bit or we, we've got to drop the tone here because this guy is a real dork. <laughs> Not the nerdy guy. I love the nerdy guy. I did But too. the other guy, you know. Um, you got to ask Bob. Back <laughs> I remember that line from Mike. <laughs> okay. We stop when he says that. We hit on her shocked look. And so they did essentially the same thing. And I think that part was still mine. I don't know. I'm not sure. But I just know from when they sent me the music cue sheets, I went, oh, this is great. I've got a whole bunch still in here. But, yeah, I, I was seeing it for the first time. But it, I liked the show, and it did well. I'm thrilled. Well, I thought, you know, it, it's a reality show, so I was a little worried about the dating aspect. But having Ellen and having Drew Barrymore, I mean, they, they are – light incarnate mm -hmm. so how you know you knew it was going to be a positive spin whatever it was and it's already been the most successful reality show in the uk for years she bought the rights to do it here 
Oh, I see. So it was, the, and the UK version, what I loved about it, because I watched some of those originally so that I would not ape that composer, because they used a ton of um, accordion in, in that version. But I watched that, and what I loved is even the biggest douchebag guy, they speak so eloquently, because they're so well-educated. <laughs> So he sure. could be a completely horrible individual, and you just want to hang out with him and just go, you're right, everybody is an asshole. We're all assholes. That's a dangerous level of power it that you man for that really accent. Is. Yeah, it is. And then when the American version went up, I went, yeah, stupid American guy. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. We talked about that on the show not too long ago, how... The British accent can make anyone oh, yeah. sound very sophisticated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Imagine if Monty Python was from here, they would have gone, I'm now the, I'm from the <laughs> Ministry of Silly Walks. You just go, eh, it's not really working for me. <laughs> Let's change it back to the Weather Channel. Yeah. <laughs> back to the Weather Channel. Oh, that's good. Well, Ron, this has been surreal and it's just been a lot of fun. I feel bad we're eating up so much of your evening. But I want to leave you with uh, one question we typically ask of all the talent we have on this show. What advice would you give to anyone looking into getting into either just the music business or even like composing for television? All right. So we're going to stick to the TV business because the film business is probably, well, maybe not, a little different. So when you want to start off, first of all, Everything that you've written is not precious and never will be, unless it's already a hit and it's still not precious. It's a gift if you're able to get there. But when you walk in and knock on that door and try and get a job at a production company anywhere, you damn well better know how to drive and make coffee and kiss everybody's butt because that's what you're going to be doing. You could be the next John Williams, but nobody's going to know it for four or five years. If you are super nice and super talented, then somebody will walk in one day and say, write a theme for this. I don't have time. Or in my case, you're the only guy here. Write a theme. We can't even do it. But that's how you build up to that moment. And you swallow your pride, and you have to be available 24-7, and then it's a very, very, very small business. So if you're ever in a mix session and you decide not to do what the creators of the show want, or you throw a little fit, you're out of the industry overnight. Wow. No, I mean, it is that, it's that small. Now, granted, there's probably some people who've gotten away with that, but uh, I had a couple years ago, I heard about a fit that a composer threw that's done, you know, one-fiftieth of what I've done. And he decided to, uh, I don't even want to say it publicly because then if it gets out, he'll know who I'm talking about him, but decided to exercise his ego for a moment. And the next day he was off the show and nobody will hire him. It's, I mean, that I heard about it. He was just a guy I don't really know. I met him once and I heard about it a couple days later. They go, oh, did you hear about so-and-so? I went, who's so-and-so? Oh, he was working on so-and-so's show and threw a fit. They fired him, and now he's calling us. We're like, nah, not going to deal with that. So um, wow. be prepared to be a slave, and then once you're in, be prepared to be a, pay a paid slave. Because that's 
Um, but you'll love it. I mean, it's got to be in your soul to do it. Right. And if it's the same with filmmaker, photographers, writers. It's just how it is. And the problem is so many young composers that write, they say, I just graduated Berkeley, and could you listen to my three things at SoundCloud? And uh, you think you could use me on your projects? And I said, well, honestly, I am a lone wolf. I've never even had an assistant. Um, I just like to take care of everything. Not that I micromanage, but I just, I'm able to get through every day so far. It's never been so overwhelming that I can't do everything. Um, but I'll listen and I'll say, this is actually very good. You should start calling some production companies and say, I will intern in the after, during the day and then get a job at night. And, um, you know, just keep doing that, serving coffee and go run errands and eventually you'll get in. And they're like, no, 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 that's not what I'm looking to do. I want, and they feel that they're already ready. Sure. And maybe sometimes they are. I don't know, but that's there's a rite of passage. Yeah, like it would you be said, like saying, everyone's got to pay their dues. Yeah, it would be like saying I've I've shot a gun my entire life, so I want to skip this stupid boot camp thing and get right into it, <laughs> and I can drive. So get me in a tank, and they would go, no, there's a certain way you got to go through this. You know, first we shave your head, then we break you down and make you feel awful. <laughs> and then if you're really great, you drive the tank, okay? Oh, <laughs> that's great. So, yeah, it's, it's the rite of passage. And that's sure. what so many people don't get. Right. And only a few of my friends through all these years really got it. One ended up, you know, working on the first Pirates of the Caribbean film with Hans Zimmer. Mm. But he really slaved away. He built... Hans's sample libraries for the first five years. He didn't score a thing. Wow. Then finally, one of the other composers said, hey, we need a theme for the ship. You want to write a theme for the ship? And he went, okay. And he's really great. And that started leading to other work. And then unfortunately, he had a family tragedy, so he left there. But he was well on his way to um, being a household name. Incredible. Absolutely incredible and good so advice. So that's the main advice, and just never have an ego about it. Because if you drop dead tomorrow, guess what? World goes on fine. Yeah, it does. <laughs> if it went on after Michael Jackson, <laughs> chance, and John Lennon, chances are it's going to go on without you scoring. You know, The Bachelorette. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep things in perspective. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Oh my God, that's funny. Well, Ron, again, this has been uh, so much fun. I just uh, thank you for taking time to talk with us oh, this evening. It's always my pleasure to do this. I really, thanks for asking me. Jake, what do we have on the website? Check out CandarePodcast.com for new and past episodes, our wall of special guests, and our new fantastic line of merch, everybody. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at CandarePod and on Instagram at Canned underscore Air. Want to be featured on the show? Check out our contacts page for more info. There you go. There you go. And check out our YouTube page. Uh, we got a lot going on there. Uh, we just had the panel with Millie Bobby Brown and also Anthony Mackie, who was Great Falcon panels. in the Avengers movie. Yeah, those are both online and available to watch now. 
a lot of stuff going to be coming up on YouTube oh, here over the next month or two. We're hitting so YouTube pretty hard there. Yeah. And uh, like Jake was saying, that merch button on our website, or you can go to society6.com forward slash pod. Check out all the uh, cool merch we got over there. T-shirts, mugs, clocks, everything you need, right? Quality Necessities. stuff. Necessities. You have to have this stuff. So it's not going to wear out. Don't be afraid to click that button. <laughs> no. It's not going anywhere. So uh, I think that's going to do it uh, for today. Uh, until next time, I'm Jeremy Colley. I'm Jake Runyon. I'm Brooke Johnson. And I'm Ron Wasserman or Aaron Waters or the Mighty Ron. <laughs> One of the three. <laughs> thanks again so much, Ron, and thanks everyone for listening. Try a podcast. Spirit! Spirit! All the comic and pop culture entertainment you could want in the Candare podcast. Finally, a form of entertainment not fully reliant on visual stimulation. Now we know! And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Joe! I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) I don't know. Right.